Welcome to the closed session, how to get paid in Silicon Valley, with your host, Tom Chavez and Vivek Vidya. Welcome back to season four of the closed session. I'm Vivek Vedya, and uh, as you know, we host very interesting conversations here with some very interesting people. And today, this conversation is a special one because not only are we going to talk about a very, very relevant topic of generative AI and ChatGPT, but I'm going to be talking to someone whom I've been had the privilege of working with at Salesforce. And then we actually go way back. There's a very interesting story about how we got to know each other. So our guest today is uh, Professor Rama Ramakrishnan, who is a distinguished professor of the practice at MIT Sloan School of Business. And Rama is a, an entrepreneur, uh, an enterprise software executive, and now, um, and now a professor. So uh, we're going to have a meandering conversation with him about uh, various topics related to chat GPT and generative AI. Uh, the way I met Rama was that he interviewed me for a job at one of his first, uh, one of his early startups. And uh, uh, I, I, I didn't take the job, uh, but, uh, but then our, cross passed, our paths crossed again at, uh, at Salesforce. So without further ado, here's Rama. Very so excited to have you here, Rama. Welcome. Thank you, Vivek. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And, and let me just say at the very outset that I have, I have never gotten over your rejecting my job <laughs> offer from many, many years ago. And it was all brought home to me very vividly when we met again at Salesforce as to what, you know, like the opportunity cost of what happened was uh, very vivid for me. Yeah. And the, I think I mentioned this to you, the, the only thing that, the one factor that led to that decision was inertia. Really, because uh, you guys were based in Boston and, and I was here in the Bay Area. And when I started my job search, I was, uh, this was way back in uh, 1999. I was uh, very open to the idea of living in Boston. But then when I got confronted with now, I have option A and option B, inertia right. one. And uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, right. it's yeah, great never, to- Never bet against human inertia, right? That's, that's sort of the model of- that's true. That's true. So uh, I know I gave a brief overview during the introduction, but uh, Rama, it'd be great for you to talk about your journey with our audience. Uh, and I'm very interested in what led you to now becoming a professor after being an entrepreneur and all of that. So talk us through your journey a little bit. Yeah, happy to. So, you know, I, um, I grew up in India. Uh, and then after an undergrad degree in engineering, I, uh, I came to the U.S. for grad school uh, I got a master's in operations research, which, if you haven't heard the phrase, uh, is basically sort of you know applied math and econ uh, put together with a little uh, dash of computer science added on top. So I did that. Then I worked in the airline industry for a couple of years, um, building optimization, scheduling, pricing systems, things like that. Uh, then I went back to grad school um, to MIT, got a PhD. Um, and uh, my PhD was actually in a very theoretical area. Uh, part of, you know, combinatorial optimization. So I did it with someone who's actually currently the head of the math department at MIT. Mm. So it was very technical. Um, and I think, you know, I think I, I'm safe in saying that my PhD work has basically seen no practical use for it up to this <laughs> point. <laughs> so I'm kind of, you know, you know, uh, weirdly enough, I'm proud of that. Um, but, uh, but after my PhD, I was always very interested in business. Um, and I was also very interested in math and computer science and so on. And um, I really couldn't pick which way to go. So when uh, McKinsey uh, came recruiting, 
uh, at MIT and they were looking for what they call non-traditional hires. Yeah. Uh, I was like, yep, I'm a non-traditional hire. <laughs> so anyway, to make a long story short, I ended up spending a bunch of years at McKinsey. Um, and then um, I spent about 20 plus years um, yeah, as an entrepreneur, being part of various startups. Um, and really the common thread to all these startups was to identify an interesting business problem um, where I felt that the use of data and algorithms could actually lead to a much better set of decisions compared to, you know, what the incumbent approach was. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I did that um, along with a bunch of other people in a few different industries, uh, asset management, transportation, retail, and e-commerce. Uh, and then my most recent startup was a company called C-Quotient. Uh, we built a machine learning-based personalization platform for e-commerce. Um, and uh, we ended up um, selling the company to Demandware, which at the time was the largest uh, cloud-based e-commerce transaction platform in the world. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Salesforce acquired Demandware uh, and Demandware became Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Um, and then C-Quotient became Salesforce Einstein for e-commerce. Um, and that's in fact where Vivek, you and I uh, yeah. recrossed our paths. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I spent a few years there uh, and then I... Um, you know, I was I got a bit restless. Uh, I want to do something else, um, so I left, uh, and that sort of coincided with uh, MIT uh, reaching out to me uh, oh. about coming on board as as a professor of the practice, and sort of you know the off the practice in the in the title essentially denotes someone who is um, who is who has a PhD who has been out in industry for a long time practic practicing their craft, yeah, um, and you know the MIT would like to attract them back. Uh, so that they can actually teach not just the theory of what what needs to be done, but also how do you actually apply it to create interesting new products and services, and and, and of course further on companies. Um, and so yeah, I've been uh, I've been on the faculty for I believe four four and a half years now. Wow, yeah, we have uh, uh, someone who works at Superset. Uh, he he was at Sloan, and yeah. um, he was telling me last night that uh, your classes are one of the most sought after classes. In the business school, so uh, oh wow, yeah. okay, that's so nice to hear. Yeah, Thanks for yeah, sharing. Yeah, that. yeah and and, and uh, if I can say this, unlike your your PhD, your 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 industry work still lives on, and uh, you know the work you did at Quotient is still powering uh, recommendations and, and billions of dollars of value for businesses across the world. So, oh yeah, thank you, thank you, Greg. That's that's uh, that's very kind of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, generative AI. Chat GPT. Yep. That's yes. the new hotness, right? So right. let's uh, um, just, if you can, can quickly, if, if if possible, just give a history of what GPT is and how we got to GP. What does GPT three? What does GPT four? What do these numbers mean? And how do we how do we get here? Yeah, yeah. No, it's actually an incredibly interesting story. Um, you know, maybe just roll the clock back a little bit there is this notion of what's called a language model, mm. right? And now we, you know, we sort of use the phrase large language model very casually. Uh, but if you go back, the, the idea of a language model was, um, could we really build a statistical model, which given a phrase in say the English language, it can predict the probability that that phrase sort of will occur in the wild, mm. right? You will actually use that phrase somewhere. So, you know, from that perspective, if, if the phrase, let's say is uh, the mat sat on the cat, hopefully the model will say, look, that's really unlikely to happen, right? right? While the cat sat on the mat is hopefully very likely to happen mm. if the model is very good. Um, and then if you sort of follow along a bit more, um, you, you realize that instead of just giving a phrase and saying, hey, how likely is it? You can give part of a phrase to a model and say, hey, what is the most likely next word that's going to pop up, mm. right? 
sort of statistically, what is the most plausible thing that we like to see? And so when you give it the cat sat on the, hopefully it'll come back and say mat and not spaceship or something, yeah, right? right? So so that is the fundamental idea of a language model. And so people had been working on different ways of uh, basically building these models by training them on vast quantities of uh, text data. Um, and those things were you know, moving nicely along, things were getting better and better. And then at some point, people decided that they were going to use these deep neural networks mm. uh, as the as the underlying mechanism to build the model, as opposed to some other technique. Uh, and then things you know, suddenly improved. Yeah. And then somebody else came along and said, you know what, why don't we use this new neural network architecture called the transformer mm. uh, instead of whatever was used previously? Let's drop that in and mm. see if it gets any better. And suddenly it got significantly better. Right. Right. And so the first incarnation of this thing at work was GPT, uh, which stands for generative for obvious reasons, pre-train, which I'll get to in a second, and then transformer because it uses a transformer. Right. And the pre-train here just means that you know we take this thing and we actually pre-train it on a vast amount of data. Just imagine all of Wikipedia, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, and the notion of pre-training is actually very subtle and clever. So perhaps I can just spend a moment on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, typically, you know, if you go back to traditional machine learning, there is this notion of, you know, okay, we're going to learn to do something just looking at a whole bunch of input-output examples, right? So, you know, you give it a picture and you have to figure out if it's a dog or a cat in the picture. Well, you've got to come up with a label which says if it's a yep. dog or a cat. Yep. Yeah, and you, and, right? And you create like 100,000 of these pictures and therefore 100,000 of these labels. And then, you know, you're off to the races. But obviously, finding all these labels or affixing all these labels is very labor-intensive. So there is always this quest to see, can we actually do any kind of clever shortcut so we don't have to do any labeling? Right. right? So when you're working with language, uh, what people figured out early on was language actually has these built-in labels for you so that you can be totally lazy about it. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. Right. So for instance, uh, you, can, you can tell the model, hey, the input is the cat sat on there, and I want you to predict the next word, and the right next word is mat. Yeah. Similarly, yeah. I can give it elementary, my dear, right. and the right label is Watson. Watson. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So basically, you can take phrases, take the first part of it and make it the input and take the last part of it and make it the output. Right. Right. Right? It's like this un unbelievable, like basically free and cheap zero-cost label generator. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so what that meant was that you could train all these models yeah. with abundantly and zero-cost label data. Um, and so that's what they did. So that's what pre-training means. Basically, yeah. training on zero-cost labels is pre-training. Yeah, it's fascinating. Right? You know, when when the, when you narrated like that, right? It's fascinating how a lot of these breakthroughs that happen in all aspects of technology are clever uh, engineering, you know, clever techniques or or tricks that people use to right. take take ideas from one domain and then apply them to another, right? Um, yeah. So instead yeah. of like labeling the image as dog or cat, you're like, oh, I'm going to take all the sentences, break them up in certain ways, and then and then assign the completion as the output for the, the exactly. pre-completion, which was the, or the prompt, which was the input. It's very clever. Exactly. Very yeah, it's clever. very clever. And by the way, this is an example of, just uh, one technique in a whole area of techniques called self-supervised learning. Right. And that is, in fact, the basis for a whole bunch of amazing models we are seeing today. It was yeah. just one way of doing it. Yeah. There are many ways of there are many ways of implementing the same idea, right? Yeah. You take the input, 
essentially take part of the input and make it the actual input and take the rest of the input and make it the label. Right, right. So, um, but yeah, but that's exactly right. So there are a lot of these beautiful tricks that came together uh, to make it work. And that was GPT. Yeah. And it was quite good. It was better than the previous alternatives. Then they were like, you know what? Let's just now build a bigger model. Right. right? You can always make these more. One of the things people realize when working with these deep neural networks is that if you make, if you can use a bigger network, i.e. if there is enough data for you to keep the bigger network happy, mm. then you'll actually come up with a better model, mm. right? You'll get better predictions, better performance, and so on. So there's always this sort of thrust to build big, bigger and bigger models as long as you can feed them enough compute and data, right? right? And and that's um, key, right? Like the, the data part is key. Because uh, and key. I think exactly. uh, Peter Norvig said it best, right? Where he said uh, more data beats better algorithms, but better data exactly. beats more data. So you, yes, you're spot on exactly. that that yeah. the, not just more data, but if you feed it better data, it will give you better results. Exactly, exactly. So um, so that's certainly has been the case here. Um, and so they did GPT-2, it was better than GPT, everything was good. Then they did GPT-3. Mm. So GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters. Meaning, it's basically, it's just a proxy for how big the neural network is. Uh, GPT-2, if I recall, had 15 billion parameters. Mm. So this was like a you know order of magnitude jump yeah. in the number of parameters. And what they suddenly began to realize was that GPT-3 started to show what what is called emergent behavior. Mm. So, and you know this, I know this feels a bit like Skynet, where suddenly you know the Terminator <laughs> eyes open and you suddenly see this red thing. So yeah, so you know it's not like that, of course. So um, but what I what what I mean by emergent behavior is that um, the you have a model and you know you test it on some task like say arithmetic reasoning or whatever and yeah, it does a pretty okay job right not terrific it's okay some kind of basically not very much better than random yeah so the model gets bigger and bigger it's still sitting around and hovering around random and then suddenly you make the, the next bigger size of the model suddenly the thing shoots way above random oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can imagine a curve where basically it's kind of flat like that, and suddenly there is like a, a ramp up, right? Mm. And so it's like, wait a second, the architecture is the same, the model, everything we are doing is the same. It's just that we're using a bigger model. Right. Suddenly it is it has woken up and yeah. it's, it's it's doing some really clever things, even though the model that was its predecessor, which is a one tenth of its size, just couldn't do anything right. all that good. Right. But, so you you know the, going back to physics, you can think of it as like a phase transition, mm, right? Mm. You know, so things is just getting you know more and more and more. Suddenly, something dramatically there's different. Like happens. there's a change point almost uh, exactly. in the in the process. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think one someone describes it as uh, which I always liked is a quantitative change in something leads to a qualitative change in something. Yeah, else, yeah, right. Yeah. Here, the quantitative change is the number of parameters, but the qualitative change is before it could actually solve a reason, it could not solve a reasoning problem. Now suddenly it can solve a reasoning problem. Right. Like, whoa, you know? Yeah. So GPT-3 was the first, I think pretty much the first time that this was compellingly obvious that when you looked at the data, uh, the other thing they realized about GPT-3 was that um, not only could it do things that the smaller ones could not do, it could do new kinds of tasks for which it was not even trained to do. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so so you you know, I, I, and the way they would do it is they wouldn't even have to change the weights or anything. You tell it, hey, I want you to do X, and then you just give it a few examples, examples. of what you want you to do. It'll just learn from those examples, quote unquote, in real time, and solve it for you, mm. even though the models internals have not changed. Right. right? 
So if you think about traditional machine learning, when, when you want the model to do a particular task really well, guess what? You got to collect a whole bunch of data, yeah. train it like crazy, update all the weights and stuff like that. And then you have a hope of it working okay, right? right? But here, the weights haven't changed. You're just giving it a few examples in the input and suddenly it sort of, it quote unquote, learns what, what, what happens. Now, there's a separate question as to whether it's actually learning from your examples or whether the examples essentially sort of locates the model in the right part of where it needs to operate, but that's sort of a in the weeds kind of research question. But the point is that it, it does what's called in-context learning. Right. Right. You give some examples, it just learns on the fly yeah. for a completely new task. Yeah. So that was a bit of a shocker. Nobody expected that to happen. And in my opinion, I think that's really what put GPT-3 on the map. And I think obviously for deserved good reasons. So, um, you know, you mentioned in-context learning, and there's also this term called fine-tuning. Uh, are they the same... What are the differences between the two, if they're not the same? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question. Um, Fine-tuning is when let's you have a model um, and you want to use it to solve a particular task. Mm. And it turns out it's not all that great at doing that task, or mm. it's not good enough for your needs. In which case, what you want to do is you want to collect a whole bunch of input-output examples of that of the model being able to do that task well, mm. much like you do in traditional machine learning. Right. You would collect a whole bunch of input examples, and then you just train the model using supervised learning. Yeah. Right. Just like you would train any other model. Right. And once you are done with that, uh, this is fine-tuning. Once you are done with that, now you have a fine-tuned model whose weights have actually changed permanently for the better. Correct. Correct. Right. But in-context learning is different where instead of amassing, let's say, you know, several hundred examples and changing the weights via fine-tuning, you just literally tell the model, hey, I want you to, for example, I want you to translate English sentences to French. Here is an English sentence. Here is a translation. Here right. is an English sentence. And you give it 10 of these examples. Right. Right. And then you give the 11th English sentence alone. Right. And right. then the model learns to basically autocomplete the translation yeah. for you. Yeah. Right. So when you do this, uh, note that the weights of the model haven't changed. Haven't changed. So the, the key is, are you altering the the model in any way, shape, or form, or not? Right. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, and then where does where 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 does um, few shot learning? Where does that fit in? All these terms yeah, yeah. that people so, throw around, right? Yeah, exactly. I know. I mean, people use a lot of crazy terminology in the space. It's tough to keep it straight. So uh, what I just explained to you, where I said, uh, you know, we just tell it. We give it, say, a few examples of what it should do, and then essentially give it an incomplete example, yeah. which will then autocomplete. Yeah. This is an example of few shot. I see. I see. So you're basically giving few examples. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever you see the word shot, think of just do a search and replace with word, the word example. Right. Okay. Okay. The few okay. shot just means few examples. Uh, similarly, there is zero shot, right. where you give it no examples. Yeah. Literally just say, hey, translate this English sentence to French for me. Yeah. And you just give it the English sentence, it'll translate it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. No examples needed. So right. so zero shot and few shot, they are all examples of in-context learning. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Because all of them only change the input. They don't change the internals of the model. Yeah. And and that's the key difference is that that's with fine-tuning, you're actually modifying the model in some way, shape, or form, uh, either the weights of the model change or maybe an extra layer gets added to the deep net or whatever happens. So the model changes, but the, the amount of time perhaps that it takes to fine tune the model is not as uh, as long as it would take to, it would have taken a trained GPT-3, for example. So that's where the exactly. advantage of something like fine tuning comes in. Exactly. I mean, I, I think of it as, you know, building the model from scratch is like in the order of months and millions of dollars. Right. While fine-tuning it is in the matter of hours. Right. And not a whole lot of money. Right. 
Right. But so, then but then yeah. it's interesting, right? Like now coming back to uh Peter Norvig and what we were talking about earlier, if you're fine-tuning, then the quality of those hundred or thousand examples that you use to fine tune that becomes super important no super important super important absolutely i think in fact i just saw something maybe a couple of days ago this model called lima lima where they were able to take the the plain vanilla you know equivalent of gpd3 which is basically the llama family yeah. and then they used exactly i, I believe a thousand examples thousand carefully uh, curated uh, assembled examples and that combination was able to do really, really well. Right. Uh, compared to some other model, which had tens of thousands of these examples. Yeah. So, so I think it's sort of like a few high quality examples tends to be disproportionately effective uh, yeah. when you're doing this. Yeah. No, and I think that's that's been it's been interesting to see all this transition from model centric AI to data centric AI now, right? Where and now with generative AI, it's it's become more and more in the in the front lines, that you just have to pay a lot more attention to the quality of your data, as opposed to tuning your model and, and optimizing hyperparameters or or those types of things. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and you know, and, and there are you know, that's a, a great observation to make. And I just want to add something, which is that um, you can actually use generative AI models like ChatGPT and Llama and so on to create synthetic correct. data for you to train other models. Correct. Correct. Yeah. The picture has gotten even more crazy. Yeah. Right. So you have your own sort of human-created high-quality data. Then you have synthetic data created by a model. Obviously, because it's coming from a model, you can be like profligate with it and just you know just crank out thousands and thousands of examples. Yeah. So you have this perpetual a few good things or a lot of not so good things, which is better kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So this problem has only gotten worse. Yeah. No, but that's another example of you know using generative AI to create data for training. Has is another example to me, uh, at least, of a clever trick that yes. uh, that engineers or or data scientists use to uh, to get to do more with less, um, yes. so to speak. No, I think that's a great example of a very clever trick. Yeah. You know, when I first read this, you know, I think the paper is called Self-Instruct, if I recall. Uh. I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> you know, I think they start out with like 175 human-created examples. And then use this thing to create fifty-two thousand examples, yeah. and then use that for doing the instruction fine tuning. Interesting. It's modeled, and that's how they built this thing called Alpaca, which yeah. is one of the first uh, open source models to come out. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that's been consistent in throughout our discussion so far is that the the importance and use of data in all of this, right? And uh, all of these models, OpenAI, you know, GP. Open AI, let's talk about open AI. They're managed and run by open AI. Yeah. So every time somebody wants to use open AI, they have to send data over to open yeah. AI. Now, if I'm doing it as a hobby, you know, who cares? I downloaded some data from the internet, I send it over. But if I'm an enterprise that is using open AI, should I be concerned about the data I'm sending them? How should I think about that? Yeah. So I think. Um, well, first of all, I, I do think that OpenAI has, um, I, I heard this from someone, that they do have sort of very clear written down mm. policies on how exactly the data is treated, what they do with it, and things like that. And my guess is that if you're an enterprise customer of OpenAI, um, you probably, you know, it, it'll it'll be something which, you know, you can run it through your legal and so on and so forth. Uh, to make sure that you truly understand exactly what happens. And yeah. I mean, I haven't seen it myself, so I can't like comment on it directly, yeah. but I've heard you know, hearsay 
that they do have these policies uh, in place. So the first line of defense, of course, is to figure out exactly what happens to your data. Right. Uh, but if you're not an enterprise customer, um, if you're just using OpenAI to do something, um, I think it's worth trying to figure out what happens. So for example, I mean, there are at least two kinds of risks I think one needs to be cognizant of. One, of course, is that um, your data, uh, to the extent that it, there is some privacy and confidentiality around it, mm. uh, your data is now actually going into the cloud and it's going to become part of something else. Correct. And if it now it becomes part of training the model, yeah. right, then the model might regurgitate it to somebody else right. without your knowledge. Right? That is actually, the, uh, in my opinion, a very important problem that yeah. you need to worry about. Yeah, and I think um, it's kind of come out, right? Because you have GitHub Copilot, which helps people write code. And it was trained on all of the source code available in, in, in GitHub. And yeah, yes, it was all open source code, but the uh, you feed it some of your own code. And and it, to your point, it might learn from that. And suddenly, I when I use it, I get your code as output. Uh, and that yes. might not be okay with uh, exactly. for you. Right? Exactly. Um, or, or for example, let's say that you want to create a personalized sales email. Right. right. So you send the information about your prospect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Along with, you know, I've spoken to them three times. They seem very excited about this enterprise database product, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Write a nice email for me. And the thing sends back the email. And then guess what? That person's particulars shows up in somebody else's interaction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that, so, the, so you can have, in you know, data leakage through this mechanism. Yes. Code yes. leakage yes. through this mechanism, like you pointed out. Yeah. So there is one big problem. I think the other problem is that uh, you may get some very compelling output back from ChatGPT, but it turns out that that output uh, may actually be using copyright infringing content Ooh. created by somebody else. Yeah. Right? So, and that's your that becomes your responsibility. So now if you take that and put it in your application, it becomes your responsibility. Right. It potentially becomes your problem. Right. right. Because it's not clear that you can just pass on the liability to somebody else. Correct. Correct. So, so I think that picture is also very murky. Yeah. Um, which is why I think a lot of the open source large language model efforts are very focused on making sure the data on which the yeah. language model is trained is sort of, you know, um, I think they have a good word for it. I, I think it's called uh, permissive licensing or something like that. Ah, okay. That's the phrase they use. Yeah. Where they basically say, look, you know, if you're a content provider, you can totally opt out of the your data being used for this thing, number one. Number two, they go out of their way to look for content where it's explicitly stated so, that oh, you can yeah. use it for stuff like yeah. this. So um, and so, yeah, that they are doing it. I think the like the, some many of the models on Hugging Face, uh, like for example, the Star Coder model they released, ah. which is the LLM assisted coding uh, product. Um, I think they are very very careful. A lot of their efforts went into making sure that they used code bases where there was explicit permission, permission. to use it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that's that's going to uh, certainly you know I think have much more momentum going forward yeah. because everyone's nobody wants to be liable for using some Correct. some random stuff that they had no idea they were using. Yeah, I'm surprised I, and this may already have happened. I'm not just I'm just not aware of it. Uh I think there's going to be an open source license like the MIT license or Apache uh, license a modification of it where it will explicitly say that yes you can use this data for or make it a permissive license for for uh, generative AI co uh, training and, yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, so, no, I think you're right. I think I, 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 that feels like that, that'll probably happen very soon. Yeah. So yeah. kind of just uh, uh, shifting gear slightly, all of this stuff now that generative AI can do, chat GPT can do, what does it do to uh, jobs? Mm. There's all this, this talk about, uh, oh, people are gonna lose their jobs, AI is gonna take over. 
what do you think yeah. about all that boy yeah this is a very uh, i think it's a very difficult question right a uh, very complex question and uh, you know just a caveat i'll you know i'll tell you what i have sort of gleaned from what i've seen so far uh-huh. uh, obviously these these comments are speculative but this is what i'm thinking right now and it's subject to change tomorrow right so <laughs> uh, that said uh, you know i think that maybe uh, we can sort of divide the sort of the the conversation to maybe three parts existing jobs right the second part is what does it do in terms of being able to do things in your current business that you just couldn't do before job right. wise right and then the third thing is what new jobs is it going to create yeah right? yeah so i think in terms of the first like existing jobs i feel maybe first of all you know i think it's much more useful to not think about a job as a job monolithically mm. but think about a job as really a collection of individual tasks mm. right and then figure out okay for each task you know what is the likelihood of it being automatable using something like chatgpt yeah yeah um, because i think that the task is like a smaller discrete unit uh, where you can easily think about substitutability yeah. using you know something like chatgpt so from that perspective i think that you know like for example there was a upen study that came out a few weeks ago which says that uh, if i recall for over 80% of jobs they thought that each one of those jobs at least 10% of the tasks that you do as part of those jobs is automatable okay yeah and that's actually a big number right 80% of jobs for 80% so, of so let me make sure i have it straight for 80% of the jobs 10% of those jobs at least 10% the of the tasks, tasks in those, those jobs were automatable, automatable using ai yeah yeah exactly. and uh, of course it's an early estimate but uh, but you know it seems reasonable to me yeah. right because uh, of the ability of large language models to create you know human sounding coherent text and things like that uh, a lot of knowledge work basically is sort of you know up for some sort of some level of automation yeah. right yeah so so from that perspective i think that um, and we're seeing evidence of it already where someone did a study where they actually tried uh, they did like a test control uh, experiment in a, a call center uh, organization and they found that the output of the the of the of the group that was using these tools was 14% higher than the output of the control group oh wow one four 14% yeah. right? so it's clearly it's an it's a productivity booster right? right you can get more you can get more output for the same input right yep. but i think the question of does it like what does it mean for jobs i think it's actually very it's a bit more involved in my opinion and the way i think about it is that so i think the best way to think about it is think of something like chat gpt as 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 a technology that has basically reduced the unit cost of producing knowledge work output mm. Mm. right the unit cost has gone down yeah so when something becomes cheaper per unit to produce there are two things that can happen right at the extremes one extreme is that you keep the current level of people that you have and you arm them with chat gpt right. and then you just ramp up your output right right that's one extreme yeah the other extreme is like well i want to keep the output flat so and then i'm just going to you know basically eliminate a bunch of jobs correct uh, so that i have many few, fewer people you know generating the same output those yeah. are the two extremes right? yeah the question is for any particular job which of these two where on this continuum are you going to lie yeah. is the question yeah. right yeah, and it's so, a very it's a very good way of looking at it right because most people are are right now looking at the pessimistic uh outlook which is jobs will be eliminated uh right. because people want to you know keep output constant but there is another optimistic view which is well look how much more you can do 
with the workforce right. you have, how much more efficient you can make them, right? Exactly. And 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 right. yeah, I think more people should be talking about that. Yes, I agree. I, 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 but I think it really comes down to I think of it as like the what is the incremental value of increasing your output? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So imagine like you're running a software company and you've run many, right? So you know what I'm talking about. So you know you may have a marketing team that right uh, that is producing content for your blog yes. and you know, social media and things like that. And then the, you have obviously your software engineering team. And let's say, and we both know that ChatGPT can certainly generate marketing content really well. Yes. It can obviously help you with coding really well. Yes. So the question is, what what should we do? Yeah. Right. So you might decide that the marketing team, right? You don't need to ramp up the output because the out you, you already sort of maxed out on it. You're putting out a lot of content. If you increase the content even more, it's just going to clutter the equal, yeah. the marketing sphere. Yeah. And maybe that's good for your company to be viewed as too spammy. Right. So you decide, you know what? I'm not going to increase the output. The, the marginal value of an incremental unit output is zero. So I'm actually going to reduce my marketing team. Right. Yeah. Or or another way of looking at that is because ChatGPT makes marketing content generation more efficient i can perhaps do more experiments right yes. and 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 i'm not spamming but i'm generating the same uh quantity but the uh, the the mix mix is different right exactly right. exactly right. yeah you could totally do that you could totally do that but it might turn out that to you can even experiment with the different mix and so on but perhaps you don't need as many people right, right? sure sure and maybe you know at the margin you reduce slightly right yeah. so that's one that one but if you look at the software engineering side, you may be like, you know what? I can release features at twice the rate yeah. that I've been able to do. And I know that my competition is going to do that. Right, right. right. I almost don't have a choice. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'm i going to keep my engineering team as it is. I'm just going to make sure every single person is using Copilot or something like that. Yeah. Right. So that I can just ramp up the output because I know the incremental increase value. in output is going to be so valuable to my business. Yeah. In fact, if I don't do it, it's going to be like value destroying. destroying. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think even in a small software company microcosm, you can see how the dynamics plays out. Yeah. Right. It really depends on the incremental value of the output. Yeah. Um, so I think that's so. So I think if you aggregate these decisions over the whole economy, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to know what it's going all going to net out as. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's a good. It, it's a great framework, right, for for leaders to kind of have. And in, depending on the function, you can think about this incremental increase in value, whether you want you want it or not, or what what happens when you suddenly ramp up the out output. Uh, with a, uh, like in the case of marketing example you gave, so it's a good framework for people to have as they think about how to in, integrate ChatGPT uh, into their uh, day to day business. Um, yeah. what, you know, it's, it's interesting as you're saying all that, right? Like the kinds of applications that people are going to be building now will, will be more workflow driven, will, will yeah. have more aspects of collaboration, uh, et cetera, as well, right? It's not going to be so much, oh, my model is better than your model. It's right, right. how do you yeah, yeah. take the model and yes. build value driving, value generating applications on top of it? Absolutely. No, I, I I could not agree more. I think that the LLM is going to be one core part of the, yeah. the whole sort of the whole thing. And you know, as you know, right, you you will need databases, you will need security, yeah. you will need scalability, you will need front end, back end, yeah. pre-processing, post-processing, yeah. the list goes on. Yeah. Right. So I mean we we, we all seen that movie before. Yeah. So uh, I think those things are all going to become super important. But I do think that, you know, people, entrepreneurs who really understand the workflow for a particular business process, uh, I think they, I mean, they are, I think, in a great spot, yeah. if you ask me, because yeah. 
you know, if you think about a business process and you ask yourself, you know, if I have like an AI co-pilot for this process, how can I dramatically improve Correct. The, the outcomes that come from this process? Well, guess what? You, you know, you need to embed the LLM with the right wrappers around it yeah. into the right place in the workflow. Yeah. So it doesn't intrude what people do, Correct. it augments them and things like that. Yeah. And I think that calls for like a deep understanding of the business, yes. the domain, the problem and stuff like that. So I feel that, you know, if 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 an entrepreneur has been working in a like like insurance file, you know, claims review, yeah. for instance, or drug discovery or something. Yeah. My God, it's it's such a cool time to be alive, right? Because uh, you can take all that knowledge you have of the domain and you can work with folks who know how to work with LLMs and you can create this beautiful sort of hybrid thing in which the LLM is injected in just the right places right. so as to maximize the final throughput of whatever you're producing. 100%, 100%. I think it's, it's yeah, yeah. That, and that is, you know, that is our core thesis at as now, you know, like everybody else in the world, we're exploring generative AI in earnest as as a category in which to build companies and products like that, where we can take uh, business processes and and figure out where do we inject LLMs to drive value. So let's let's explore another topic, uh, Rama, which is which I think is is germane to this conversation. Um, what about risks? Where all this data flowing around, people sending data left, right, and center. As you said, we don't even know what uh, data all these models are trained on. We're, we're talk- we were talking about permissive licensing and things like that. Um, is there going to be regulation? Like, how is how is governance going to occur uh, for all of this, do you think? Yeah, gosh, yeah. So, you know, maybe um, before we talk about, um, you know, regulation uh, and governance, you know, just a quick sort of comment on the risks for, any sort of company that's beginning to use LLMs, yeah, you know, or to you know to to help augment some of their workflows, you know, I, I guess it's I think it's worth remembering that um, you know LLMs like ChatGPT, while they can be brilliant one moment, they can be really dumb the next moment. Yeah. So I mean, like for example, that you know their output could be just factually wrong. Correct. It could be toxic. It could be biased. It could have the wrong tone. It or or even or even it may not just do the things you wanted to do, right? right? It may answer a different question accurately. Who cares? Yeah. So so given all that, um, I feel that it's very very dangerous to use today's LLMs in any sort of automated lights out fashion. Mm, I think it's just interesting. Dangerous. I yeah. think it's really important to have a have some way of you know validating the output, uh, confirming that it's good before it sort of sees the light of day by yeah. an external party or a customer or an employee or a partner or something. Yeah. And I think companies which are beginning to experiment with this, they always have a human in the loop right Right, now. right. Right? And so so I feel like that's like like rule number one, right? Have have some way to check authentic validity of the output before you actually let anybody else see it. Right. Uh, because it's going to be very difficult to walk back some of these things if, you know, if there are there are blow-ups. Yeah. Right? So that's the first thing to remember. Um, but I think more moving more broadly to the idea of regulation and governance, I feel that... Um, you know, I I think that is there's a lot of talk about uh, the risks caused by these systems. Yeah. Uh, most notably, you know, this whole risk extinction risk has been much talked about, uh, right? The last you know couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, I think um, I think it's the extinction risk sort of is overblown. Okay. I feel actually it is detracting us, distracting us from a whole bunch of other risks that are all too real right now. Mm. Uh, you know, for example. 
the risk of, for example, a whole bunch of job loss is yeah. going to happen. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of cybersecurity risks that yes. are already happening. Yes. Because clearly the bad guys can download the, the open source model like you and I can. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there is a whole bunch of risk around income inequality being exacerbated by the fact that, you know, the folks who are already well off are going to benefit disproportionately from this technology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. There is the misinformation, disinformation risk. Uh, right, our information space is going to get much more easily polluted with a yeah. whole bunch of very realistic sounding stuff, nonsense. Um, and I, what that means is that I think if you sort of feel that you can't trust any piece of information that's out there, then you will sort of stop trusting all Anything. information. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the, the, so, the, I could create a video of you, like you're in Boston right now. I could create a video of you sitting right here, uh, and there would be no way for you to dispute that. Or it'll be exactly. very hard for you to do, uh, for you to dispute that, exactly. right? Right. Yeah. It just sort of it puts a tax on everything, yeah. right? When that happens, yeah. so so those are all incredibly real risks that we have right now, and I think you know it's not very clear how we actually go about addressing them. Yeah. Um, but you know, but there are you know there have been many examples in history where there were similar problems that were considered, and you know the government did something. Right? Yeah. So for example, you know uh, I, I heard this analogy somewhere where they said, look, you know, it obviously it's very easy. It's very valuable if you can, you know, print counterfeit money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the ultimate deep fake. Yeah. Right. Counterfeit yeah. money is the ultimate deep fake because yeah. you could use it in other deep fakes. So, yes. you know, and so, but the thing is, clearly it's not a huge problem, right? Yeah. We have it under control. It's not like the economy is awash in counterfeit money. Uh, it's a very small fraction of the economy. And how does it work? Because we have regulation, we have enforcement, we have a whole infrastructure. Yeah. That's that is designed to make sure that problem is kept as low as possible. Right. So I'm, I'm sure there are similar mechanisms we can use yeah. to control other kinds of problems that AI is going to cause. Yeah. So I, I feel like there is a sort of a, a role for thoughtful regulation on those kinds of risks. Yeah. Uh, and, I th and I think, you know, we should do that. At the same time, I feel that we should make sure that we don't sort of regulate the open source community, yeah. regulate startups and things like that. Uh, or, or AI more broad, broadly, I think it's dangerous to actually try to slow down the rate of development we have here for a couple of reasons. One reason, of course, is that I think it's one of the greatest things we have ever come up with. Yeah. And it's going to lead to all sorts of amazing benefits. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we have already solved protein folding. What's next? Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's like an unthinkably, unthinkably hard problem that we actually take it for granted now. Right? Yeah. It's been solved. Yeah. So, and I think it's going to do amazing things like that in the future. Um, and that's one reason. Uh, but people may disagree with me on that. Maybe they they think I'm just being overly optimistic about this stuff. But there's another even better reason, in my opinion, which is that the bad guys are not going to be sitting still. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They're not going to be sitting around saying, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah uh, sure. I won't do anything on for the next six months. Thank you. Yeah. They're not going to do it. <laughs> so if if the bad guys are not going to do it, then gosh, the, the worst thing we can do is to be throttling all development and putting a pause on it. Right. Yeah. Right? So just to make sure we are ahead of the bad guys, we need to keep doing this yeah. thing. No, I, that is kind of the avoid the negative scenario. But I also think the you know let's embrace the positive scenario is as compelling. Yeah, no, I think this this balanced view is what we need, right? Where you you need to be extremely cognizant of the risks, as you were mentioning earlier, and and not but and invest in development because the potential for uh, for progress is just uh, is just huge. Um, yeah. So one final exactly. question uh, for you, Rama. Um, you mentioned earlier, what a time to be alive. Um, yeah. So does the does the does the practice part of you wants to come out and and do something again? 
Yeah, you know that's a that's a good question, Vic. I think about it every so often. Um, but you know, I'm I'm actually really happy uh, being an educator. Yeah. Um, because you know, fundamentally, I'll be totally candid with you. Uh, what I really love is to learn all this cool stuff, right? And basically, I'm being paid to indulge my love of learning, <laughs> right? The only price I have to pay is to occasionally take what I learn and try to distill it into something that I can teach other people with. Yeah. But that's a good forcing function anyway, because otherwise yeah. I'll just be reading something and nothing good comes, comes out, of, out it, of it, right? Yeah. So I'm some kind of happy doing what I'm doing. Uh, I do miss the occasional, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to be part of a team and like, you know, try to conquer the mountain or yeah, something, yeah, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? The whole startup, working with a bunch of people that you like and respect yeah. uh, on a common mission. I miss that. Yeah. Uh, because I think being an academic is a bit of a solitary pursuit, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Um, but but except for that, um, you know, I'm actually very happy being in the space and, you know, working with students and advising students and hearing about all the exciting companies they are trying to build and trying to be helpful, you know, now and then. Yeah. And you, I'm sure you get uh, you get calls from folks in your network to be an advisor. And, and so you, you get you get to be part of the the innovation process. Uh, yeah, indirectly yeah, sure. uh, as well, right? So exactly, yeah, yeah. No, so yeah, I'm yeah, I'm an advisor to a bunch of startups, um, like you pointed out, and that's really been fun because I sort of stay plugged into the ecosystem yeah. to see what's going on, uh, and you know, and and but it, but it's nice because it, it's sort of like a portfolio of things. Yeah, uh, teach, I learn, I do research, and I advise companies, and the whole thing is sort of a nice self-reinforcing ecosystem. So yeah. I'm happy with that. Well, Rama, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of The Closed Session. This was such an enlightening conversation. Lots and lots of very interesting uh, and actionable takeaways that uh, that I'm certain our re uh, listeners kind of uh, took away from this. So thank you again. And uh, yeah, it's been fun talking to you. We could have gone on for another three hours on this, I know. But, uh, <laughs> but we'll no, have to you, do it you, another you, time. Yeah. You're very welcome, Vivek. It was it was a real pleasure to to be on the podcast with you. I think your questions were very thoughtful, um, and uh, it was really uh, fun to discuss these questions with you. and And I wish you all the very best for Superset. I think you guys are doing uh, you know amazing things. I occasionally check the website and see what's going on, and it's always something new is going on. Well, thank it's you. It's very exciting. And uh, and I hope one of these days uh, we get to meet uh, in person and catch up. We will definitely do that. Uh, it might happen sooner than you than you might imagine, because uh, there is a good chance I'm going to be in your neck of the woods uh, over the summer. Dates are still being finalized, but when I'm there, I'll definitely ping you. We can grab lunch or something. You absolutely must. All right. All right. I look forward to it. Thank you, Ramat. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to stay up to date. And we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>